Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. The Ramos Gin Fizz is a mythical creation, even by classic cocktail standards. It was conjured up around 100 years ago by Henry Ramos in, you've guessed it, New Orleans. And the Ramos is best known for its bicep straining preparation and the chain of shaker boys historically employed to ensure a perfect, frothy, towering foam. These days, you're more likely to come across a Ramos on Instagram than in a bar. It just doesn't jive with modern trends or palettes, and it doesn't really lend itself to bar programs, but it does look mighty fine on the gram. At the same time, the Ramos is one of those classics that all great bartenders need to count among their repertoire. So here we are. Now, I may have gotten a little carried away with some of the stated shaking times in today's episode. 12 minutes, 20 minutes, who's even counting? And ultimately, those numbers mean nothing in today's money, not with the modern shaking techniques employed by today's bartenders. To learn about those and to break down this cocktail shake by shake, I chatted with Lucinda Sterling, a disciple of the late Sasha Petrosky, who continues to work as managing partner at two of his final bars, New York's Middle Branch and Seaborn. What I really love about Lucinda's approach to bartending is her pragmatism. The fact she won't get lost down some rabbit hole chasing unachievable perfection. Instead, Lucinda focuses on the factors that really matter, balancing the books while always serving balanced, considered drinks. And if there's one cocktail that could benefit from a touch of realism, it's the Ramos, sorry, Ramos gin fizz. This is Cocktail College. I'm Tim McCurdy, and we are here in the Vine Pair headquarters with Lucinda Sterling, and we're talking today about the Ramos Gin Fizz. Lucinda, welcome. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to be here with you. And, you know, I don't want to timestamp this too much, but it's brunch o'clock right here, and Ramos Gin Fizz, perfect brunch cocktail, right? has everything you need in there. So we're talking gin, cream, lemon, and lime, mm-hmm. and soda water. Before we get into the, the the kind of like nitty gritty with that and the technique, that's, is, that, is, is that kind of an outlier in the cocktail space? Like the, the, the combination of those things, like there's, there's some notable things there, right? Like cream, you don't find in most cocktails but also using lemon and lime. Like, how much of a, of a kind of, like, standalone drink is this? Uh, well, I think with the mix of lemon and lime, you're getting a more balanced citrus effect. Lime is a little bit more gentle, and that's why you can get away with using more of it in certain drinks, like the gimlet or a daiquiri or a margarita. Mm-hmm. So interesting because um, I was recently actually at a talk given by Dale DeGroff, and he was talking about the history of citrus and saying those very same things, you know, like how 
lime and lemon are are different profiles and yeah profiles that can complement each other and you know that they, they, they maybe are like you say they they have different a different ph different acidity levels but they that they, they bring different complexities to it but to my mind i can't think of any other drink i'm sure they're out there but any other cocktail what, what are other cocktails that have lemon and lime both in there i couldn't tell you for sure right now um, no, so none of the good yeah. ones. Lucinda doesn't know that none of the good ones. None of the ones that you want to be drinking. Well, I want to drink everything, so <laughs> I can't speak to that. <laughs> but if there was another one, I would think that it would be something that has um, orange as well. You know, like a combination of all the citruses, just so that you get that round, that roundness of citrus experience. And I think that they have actually done a good job of distilling each of these ingredients, like lemon, lime, and orange and maybe even grapefruit into one. Um, and I think that it's, I think it was a Tanqueray that kind of did that, a Tanqueray uh, 10 or something. They have um, Rangpur, which is a Seville orange gin. It's very good. So I think so that yeah. that's where that's important is mm-hmm. because you want that full consummate experience with the citrus mm-hmm. that you're getting. And yeah, that's a, that's a kind of like fast forward into the future of this conversation. We're going to be talking about that later, but I think that's a good candidate for a gin when we get into that. But the Ramos conversation, I think, is boils down, actually, this is a cocktail podcast, distills down to two topics, <laughs> right? Yeah, that's good, right? <laughs> <laughs> distills down to two topics, shaking and then one that I'm going to put out there as well, and I'm going to say for the gram, right? Instagram appearance. And this is a tale of, and one directly leads to the other, right? Like the shaking gets you to this drink that probably looks better than any other out there. So let's let's talk about shaking. Let's talk about shaking this drink because I think famously... The, the, the legend goes that you should drink, you, you should shake your Ramos for 20 minutes. Um, do you subscribe to that theory? And also, I believe there's a kind of, there's a number of different techniques that have come out there in recent years that can maybe cut some of that time or make it a little bit easier. I love the fact that there are so many stories behind the preparation process of the Ramos Gin Fizz, but I do believe that there are separate processes involved in making the Ramos Gin Fizz. Like you had to shake your cream a little bit differently because it requires a lower temperature and then your egg white, if you shake it too long, then it just becomes flat or too hard and, and not as uh, playful. and it has Like over whipped. Yeah, over whipped. It has fewer bubbles. Um, and the bubbles, the integrating the bubbles, um, I think is a really important part of making that Ramos Gin Fizz. So that was probably why it took so long is because there were you know, so many different processes. I don't think it was because some guy was standing there for 20 minutes. Like, Just shaking <laughs> for 20 minutes. Because the story as well is in the history that um, in certain bars in New Orleans, and this, this is a sidestep for a minute, but I'm just going to point this out because the elephant in the room, some people might find it weird the, the way that I pronounce New Orleans and Ramos Gin Fizz. I'm sorry, I'm never going to change either of those two things. Um, but... The story is that people, 20 minutes, you so you'd have your shakers there. You would employ people to shake this cocktail, which is crazy. But I think, like you said, things get lost in history and didn't take 20 minutes, right? But you're, you're talking start to finish. Today, however, we have these different techniques, right? The dry shake, the reverse dry shake, 
what are these things should we care about them like how can they help this cocktail i think at the end of the day that you only need to care as far as your customer's satisfaction or your guest's satisfaction make them happy if you if they want a Ramoshin fizz that has two inches of foam on top, then do that for them. And there's a way to do it. You put it in the refrigerator and you let it sit and then, then you get that separation. But if somebody wants a drink right away and you're going to make that 12, 15, however many dollars you're going to make off of it, integrate it, just shake it together and then pop it out on the, on the bar. And can you briefly explain to me as a layman, what a, a what a dry shake is and what a reverse, is it a reverse dry shake? What these two techniques are? Well, I would say a dry shake is just not using ice. So not using so so you're shaking and and typically we're shaking cocktails that will have citrus and in this case also egg white to incorporate that you're shaking it without ice. You're shaking an egg white definitely without ice first because that's how you're going to get the foam. The, you're going to integrate the bubbles, um, and then um, shaking with a little ice creates a little aggravation. So the aggravation is an um, important process in making the cream. You know so. Um, I would personally recommend maybe shaking the egg white separate from the cream and not shaking the cream for too long, but then joining both of those together and then finish shaking because then you're getting this nice like bubble like layer. So, and, and just a quick recap there as well. We're, we're going to get into these ingredients more, but we're talking in that tin. So you, you have your gin, your lime and lemon, as we spoke about. You have simple syrup to, um, you know, bring some balance, some sweetness. And you're so you're saying at that point you're having your egg white, um, but you're not going to add your cream first. So you're going to shake it up and then you're going to add cream after and shake it again starting to see where this whole 20 minute business is coming into it seems like a complicated process right well if you're um, a good bartender then you can shake with both hands separately but Ooh. but i think that if you're going to make a a lot of ramos gin fizz if that's something that you regularly do like they do in new orleans have like a batch of you know semi shaken cream on the side because it stores very well it stays for you know up to three to five hours so that's less work for the bartender. So semi semi whipped cream. Not even really whipped, just like aerated slightly. And so that helps bring the bubbles to the egg white that's been, you know, shaken. That's awesome. And aerated and prepared on the side. And also so you this is a, something I guess you could do there as well. If this was a drink that you have on your menu. Mm-hmm. What I'm trying to say here, yeah, if you had this drink on your menu, you could have lemon and lime batched there for the day mm-hmm. but together again just taking one process out of it taking one step out of the process absolutely mm-hmm. but you don't want to add your acid until everything is completely aerated oh no yeah but just just separately yep. right so you have your semi with your your, your your aerated cream and your your lemon lime mix yeah you could even do the lemon lime mix with the gin if you mm-hmm. want to really knock out <laughs> yeah <some> details mise en place but is this a drink then for the... So we've spoken about the effort that goes into it. Is this a drink that you want to put on the menu? A, I guess just from that kind of um, preparation perspective, right? It takes a long time. So are you setting yourself up for failure if you put this on your menu? It's a Friday night. You get an eight top in of people and they're like, oh, never heard of the Ramos Gin Fizz. Let's get eight of those. Like, would you, should this be on the menu or is it also, is it more of a kind of insidery 
handshake, as we call it these days. Well, if it's on the menu, it should come out of a gun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I think if somebody ordered a Red Machine Fizz for me, not being on the menu, yeah. I would make two, one for them, one for me. Mm-hmm. But you would, you for the record, you do not have this on your menu right now. Oh, I would. I, I think that's a, a step in the wrong direction if you're trying to be a craft cocktail bar. Mm-hmm. But um, if you're a restaurant style bar, I think people expect to wait a little bit longer for their cocktails. Mm-hmm. And we're we're looking at making money and and volume. Mm-hmm. So money and volume, and this is not a drink that's kind of receptive to those things. It depends on how you prepare. You know, you can you can knock it out as long as you don't feel like you have to put it in the refrigerator and let it sit for 12 minutes mm-hmm. or have 12 people shaking yeah. <laughs> for one minute at a time. Sure. And that comes into it as well, right? So, you know, we talked about the different shaking techniques, but that's another thing that you can do. So you, you brought all those ingredients together in the shaker, you've shaken them, you've added your cream, you're shaking that too. You put it in the fridge to kind of solidify the body. And this is before we're adding sparkling water i don't know if it solidifies the body i think that what it does is creates a little separation so when you do finally add the soda the foam rises to the top faster so, so the that's foam how that. is so the foam separates from the rest of your ingredients that yeah you're having it's lighter mm-hmm. and it has because of the air that's been introduced so it's going to sit higher up and if you add soda too fast then it's going to like flow over the top of the glass so that's why they do the slow pour and um, I think there's a process that uh, you can use um, a stirring spoon, mm-hmm. right, to add the soda, and it creates more of a sink mm-hmm. effect. So, so the soda goes straight on to the, the Are we talking the, 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 the twizzly part of the spoon or the, the... The swizzle. The swizzle, is that yeah. what it's called? Well, I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of words for it, but yes, it's a twisted bar spoon. So if you add the soda... Via that, it goes straight to the bottom of the glass rather than introducing um, carbonation at the top, straight at the top. My first job in the restaurant industry um, was being a food runner. And unfortunately, part of my responsibilities were making coffees as well. And so we'd do, you know, 120 covers or whatever on a Friday night. I'd run all those tables myself, you know, just patting myself on the back here. And towards the end of the night, we'd get the coffee orders in. That's fine, apart from the fact that I was like 18 and didn't drink coffee. But Saturday night, we'd, get, we'd start to get the orders through of the Irish coffees. And I had this same problem all the time with the whipping the cream and getting it to float. And then I would make three or four, the cream would sink. But you're supposed to do that on the back of a spoon. I don't know, this is a huge tangent, but like, no, spoons are helping for that. But I, I feel like that's kind of related to what we're talking about, cream and spoons. <laughs> okay, well, think about it like this. Uh, the, the, <clears throat> the greatest surface tension is in the middle. So if you add the cream to the middle, it's less likely to drip down the side. So if you're putting your spoon in the, in the middle, then it's going to go straight. It's going to maybe set a little bit at the top, but if you're talking about something going to the bottom intentionally, maybe go from, from the side. Mm-hmm. But stick that spoon in there, and and, and yeah, but back to the Ramos, where where you just sticking the spoon in so that the the whole thing comes up. Yeah, but you want to be careful not to break that mesh of protein, right? And that's bread. that's where that's what worries me when you're talking about using the spoon because I'm like, you just spent this effort creating this incredible foam, and then you're gonna stick a spoon in there from the side. 
on the side. Yeah. Perfect. Um, ultimately, you already answered this. It's, it's down to what the guest wants, right? But you yourself, Lucinda Sterling, are you going for the Ramos that looks amazing? I'm looking out the window here. I can see the Empire State. I'm talking about Empire State foam on the top. Or do you go for one that's a little bit more chill, you know, but very well incorporated? What do you subscribe to? Um, now the latter, because the first time I ever made a Ramos Gin Fizz, well, not the first time, but one time when I was making a Ramos Gin Fizz for a guest, uh, she saw me making that. I put it in their fridge to let it sit for five minutes. You know, that's, that's a cap. In the meantime, I had made like six to ten other drinks, and she saw that, and she said, why did you just make six to ten other drinks? And I had been waiting here for my Ramos Gin Fizz. I said, that's how you're supposed to do it, you know? And she said, I'm out. She walked away. I said, great. Now I have a Ramos Gin Fizz that I can drink. <laughs> so you only made one that time. You were making two for the... Well, th- she left. But that time, yeah, I, I only made one. I had yeah. other people there. So yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to be that kind of person that night. Um, so I think it's really important to think about the situation that you're in. You know, and if somebody comes up and asks for a Ramos Gin Fizz and they give you some other details and some other requests, then of course, you know, do your best to fulfill them but at least be realistic about your situation. Mm -hmm. And I also know that up until this point, we haven't mentioned that orange blossom is in there. Mm -hmm. And that's probably a thing for the ingredients section of it. I'm just putting it out there. I know that that's in there. Is that something that I should be going on Amazon and ordering? I have to have that for this drink or... You know, is it one of those things where I'm looking at a recipe and I'm like, well, you know, it says two drops. I don't need that. Like, I've got all the rest of the stuff. Like, how essential is that to this ingredient, uh, to this cocktail? I think it's essential because you've already got the other two citrus ingredients. Um, and it adds to that floral element in the in the very fragile uh, body that it has. So instead of using actual orange juice, which kind of doesn't work well in cocktails in general... Really? You got the essence of orange. And why is that in terms of the orange juice? It's just, yeah, I don't yeah. really recall many drinks with orange juice. No, there aren't a lot. Um, you've got the Gentleman's Buck and the New Orleans Buck, and they use orange. Usually those are uh, pineapple-based, but pineapple's not always that available. Mm-hmm. Um, but the orange just seems to have like this quality where it it gets less appealing after it's not freshly freshly juiced just something about it i'm not quite sure like i'm not a scientist right now but fresh orange juice is a thing <laughs> so if it sits for a while then it's not as useful then it's not as good so we're using and and that but orange blossom essence is just incredibly powerful and potent and floral like you say too mm-hmm. and so just has a profound effect well yeah the aromatics from that i think are gentle and it's not going to overtake the drink um I think it's essential in the, del- the in the delivery of the drink because as it, as the foam definitely dissipates or as the bubbles start to break down, you get that oh that um, beautiful smell, mm-hmm. that beautiful aroma from the Ramos Gin Fizz, and I think that's one of the draws. And that's something about cocktails as well, where the Ramos specifically, we're looking to engage all of the senses. We've, we got the eyes already. We know that. This this thing is coming out. It looks amazing. But then that helps with the aromas before you take a sip. Sure. You've got the presentation. You've got the mouthfeel. And then you have 
the aromas. And I think the most important thing to take away from that situation is smell has the most impact long-term with your experiences. That's how you're tasting. Yeah. The nose. The nose nose. Um, so another question here, kind of philosophical in a way. It's not philosophical, Tim. Um, I think that the Ramos is the souffle of the cocktail world. And don't say to me, oh, yeah, that's obvious because, you know, you know, you're whipping it up and it's hard and hard to make or whatever, right? Like the souffle is something that you learn how to make, but you know it's very fragile. You put it in the oven, it can collapse. It's very difficult. But ultimately, is anyone ordering them? Like, so is that true of the Ramos as well? Like, it's, it's this great thing that maybe you go to bartending school maybe it doesn't exist, to learn how to make your classic Ramos and then you never make one again. Like, how popular is that drink these days? How many orders? When was the last time you made a Ramos for a customer? Four years ago. Four years ago. Who was it? It was a very important person. Oh, really? Yes. Do you want to tell us about that? Well, um... Her name is Lucinda. (laughs) (laughs) There's an Instagram uh, page out there. Um, Somebody started requesting people to send in their pictures or images of Rainbow Shin Fizz and how big they can get. And so I did that. And I'm like, oh, man, it fell so flat (laughs) immediately. So I never sent in a picture. But it's an interesting site. It gives you like a little bit of. So it's an Instagram devoted to this cocktail. Wow. Yeah. But you, so you, that was the last time you made that drink for a paying guest? Yeah. I just decided to start making other things. <laughs> so, but clearly you don't have it on the menu, but people are not coming in and ordering them. It's no surprise that they're not because they don't want to wait. Because I'm sure there's a historical aspect to that. But uh, I think that there are other great ingredients that are out there that don't incorporate egg and cream at the same time. Very rarely do I get an order for a whiskey sour with an egg white in it. Mm-hmm. Pisco sour, yes. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a that's a very popular one. But I think egg white has kind of like gone by the wayside a little. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the ingredient. Let, let's go, let, let, let's take the microscope out now and we're going to look. We're going to go look at incredible attention to detail at every part of this, the ingredients and the process, starting with the gin. Um. This is a gin cocktail, mm-hmm. which maybe don't think about because of all the other things that we've been speaking about. Do you feel like a classic London dry is the way to go because it's historical and was probably what was used? Or do you feel like these new styles of gin that we're seeing maybe lend themselves more to that because they're they're not quite as juniper forward and have other aromatics? Well, the Old Tom was the original. Old recipe, Tom, yeah. Right? Sorry. Let's talk about that. That's it. Old Tom was the original <laughs> gin. <laughs> then you get your London Dry. And of course, London Dry still has those botanicals that you can smell. But um, I think it's a sweeter drink, naturally, by nature, because of its ingredients. It's a more like a dessert-style drink. Mm-hmm. Or like we said, brunch. Yeah. And then um, these new styles that are coming out that have, um, I don't know, some strange amount of botanicals. Um, it depends on how those botanicals relate to the rate, the ingredients in the Ramos. The rest of the ingredients. Yeah. 
I think that's a really important consideration. And you can have a dry gin and still make it taste good. It doesn't mean that it's dry necessarily. Um, it can still be a sweet drink. But um, I think if, if there's a citrus-forward gin, yeah. I would definitely gravitate toward that. So you were talking about that tankery earlier, yeah. you know, Rangpur. And I think 10 is also kind of... 10 is the best. 10 is really good. <laughs> I, have a, I have a very soft spot for 10. Mm-hmm. But yeah, some some citrus forward gin is going to lend itself to the the lemon and the lime. Sure. And you don't want to have too many gins in your, you know, in your well or on your back bar. How many gins do you have on your back bar? I have, um, let's see, I lost count at 40. Yeah? Just kidding, I only have six. <laughs> the most important ones that are ordered all the time, like Hendrix, um, I've got Plymouth, Beefeater, and um, um, that beautiful butterfly pea, pea shoot. Uh, Empress. Empress. Yeah, a lot of people like to order that one. Mm-hmm. Got to do it for the gram. Mm-hmm. So out of those, which one would you pick for this cocktail? Plymouth? I think so. Mm-hmm. That has that kind of citrus forward aspect. Or Ford's gin. Ford's gin. Very good. I'm a big fan. As as a quick aside, I don't know what they're doing over there. How do they put out that gin at that price? It's so good. And how is it that price? I don't get it. Anyway. um, Cream. Next ingredient. Can Can I stick to my kind of... 30 for 30 or whatever can I do half and half here am I I've got it it's got to be for the full cream for this what's the anything tell me tell me what I should know about cream when I'm thinking about making this drink I think you should use heavy cream I'm not quite sure of the fat content but it does have to be a fatty cream has to be a fatty cream something that's more like a whipping a whipping cream yeah do we have whipping cream here do you know like you know there's whipping cream and like double cream or is that one of those weird UK US things that just doesn't exist well, what's the fat content of double cream? I don't know. Sounds I think it's twice as much as uh, normal cream. Huh. I wonder if they are using the same definition of cream over there as over here. It's <laughs> crazy Brits. Um, so you were speaking earlier, though, about like kind of semi-whipping and also temperatures. Is it easier to, to shake up and whip cream if it's like room temperature or pulled from the fridge it's not as effective you have to have it refrigerated you have to sure. have it refrigerated yeah i think that's why my irish coffees at the end of the saturday nights because i left my cream out mm. it just wasn't whipping and eggs should be more uh, room temperature egg yes perfect next point eggs tell me about room temperature egg whites and how the uh new york health authority <laughs> feels about that <laughs> Well, I think there's just a certain amount of time that they can be out of the fridge before the health department says anything. So as long as they're in the refrigerator when they're there and you take it out, just let it sit for a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's not going to take that much longer to get its room temperature, you know, maybe a minute or two. But room temperature eggs are easier to whip up. Like room temperature is relative. So um, if you're in a, a tropical setting, maybe room temperature happens in five seconds. <laughs> yeah. but, uh you really want to consider where you are. 70 degrees is about the time um, the egg is ready to win. Mm-hmm. Pulling out my thermometer. Fahrenheit. And, oh, Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit. Good to know. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to get that up to Celsius. Um, <laughs> or centigrade. Are they the same thing? Celsius and centigrade? Who knows? 
Here's something that I have to contribute, and I'm not the expert here, but from my time working in kitchens in London, not a souffle, because no one orders those. We've established that. <laughs> Macaroons. Oh, yum. Egg white, whipped egg white is essential. And I'm going to say this. Yeah, we did not follow the health and safety guidelines of the local government because what we would do if we knew that we were making a big batch of macaroons the next day, a very good pastry chef taught me a trick, which was leaving it room temperature overnight, covered with cling film, but with like holes, you know, studded in so it can breathe. And basically what you're doing, like some of the water content of the eggs evaporates. Mm -hmm. It's gone. And egg, egg whites are like, what, 70% water? So, you know... Maybe if you're doing this at home and you're not trying to run an establishment that has a liquor license, you can do that, right? Like leave your egg whites for your Ramos out overnight. Is that something you've done before or tried? No, that's one thing I'm going to try now, actually today. But um, I think it's common knowledge that you don't necessarily have to refrigerate your eggs. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a certain point that they do start to deteriorate. Do you, does everybody know how to check if an egg is still good or if it's bad? turn no let it float in water and if it floats it's a bad it's a bad one yeah if it's if it stays at the bottom of the glass or bowl or what have you mm -hmm. it's still okay um after that simple syrup so you're talking about to old tom gin earlier uh do you think they probably used simple syrup in the original or would they have needed to because they had that and why are we bringing simple syrup into the equation in the original, no. I think um, because of what David Wondrich had told me one time, they didn't use actual sugar. It was more like um, a baker's sugar, like a powdered sugar. Mm -hmm. So maybe that lent itself to integrating the ingredients a little bit better back then. So simple as a shortcut. But we're using that now, and that's strictly necessary, again, like the full-fat cream? Well, I don't think you need to, actually. If you used um, like sugar cubes, that would help aggravate the ingredients so you get more air bubble int int introduction so when you're shaking it so you're sticking you're just chucking a cube in there maybe or two and this reminds me of a conversation i was having with eric alperin for the first episode of cocktail college and he was talking about how they have a very specific spec for the sugar cubes that they use for the old-fashioned and i know that you and eric came up in the same family as it were. Mm -hmm. Is that is this technique that we're talking about today linked to that? Is that, you know, well, a, is that a Sasha? Is that a Sasha kind of um, development? I can't speak to that being a Sasha development, but I do believe that sugar was used in its raw form, not necessarily raw, but like a cube form um, for a long time before I even realized. But like I said, simple syrup is a shortcut. So using a sugar cube, while it introduces sweetness, there is like um, a bitterness that comes from sugar as well. And that kind of helps make the drink less sweet, even though you have the sugar cube. But if you're using simple syrup, it changes the whole dynamic of the, of the drink. I just said, mm-hmm, and accepted that as a norm. But like, actually, I'm like, no. So there's a bitterness with sugar cube so are you saying sh simple syrup is almost perceivably sweeter than using a sugar cube absolutely really yeah ask mr ed mr ed yeah he loves sugar cubes horses like sugar cubes 
who's Mr. Red. <laughs> That's another episode. <laughs> <laughs> but, so, okay. And it just makes the um, adding water just makes the sweetness more available to your palate. You're, you detect the sweetness sooner. Oh, okay. On your palate. But on the other hand, so using a cube, we're adding complexity, not, which not, is bitterness, but not, you're helping the... Not necessarily adding. Yes, complexity is a good thing. Complexity. Yes, but not adding pure sweetness. No. But we're also aiding in the shaking process, which we've established is kind of hard. Wait, okay. Yes, in an old-fashioned... <laughs> there's a little bitterness but i'm thinking if you're adding a sugar cube versus simple syrup then you're helping the aggravation process yes yes and anything that you can do to do that just do it go with it yeah then you'll need 11 boys mm-hmm. to, to shake, shake them yeah. rather than 12. 20 12 <laughs> whatever <laughs> <laughs> and then so gin cream egg simple citrus We've spoken about the importance and why we're using the two different types. Let's go a little bit science for a second and talk about fresh citrus. How fresh is fresh and what's the best? I would think that fresh means then. Straight away. Yes. But some would argue that the level of acidity for lime juice goes down and at around... Eight to ten hours is the peak time to use lime. Would that be Dave Arnold? <clears throat> no. I think there are a lot of people that think that as well. Um, it just needs a little time to cool off. I don't cool off, but you know what I mean? like. Yeah, blow off some steam like my dog at the moment. <laughs> it's so crazy. Just like it needs five minutes in the morning to just run around the house a little bit and then we're good. Just oxidize, you know? Yeah. I think there's a, a little... There's a flavor change, but lime juice has an amazing ability to last for a long time, even days. Uh, lemon juice, however, I think um, it because of the f- characteristics that it has, you know, it's oily, it's nice, it has that, if you're juicing it with the skin on, then it has that nice oilness, oil to it, that will help it disintegrate a little bit faster. And I wasn't calling Dave Arnold out, like, it wasn't like calling him out. You know, oh, I mean, but I was like, but he's written, you can search it online. He's written an article where it's like, they test citrus after different intervals. And for me, it's fascinating. Again, like I've, I've been to a seminar recently, as we sp- spoke about on the history of citrus. It's, it will blow your mind. That guy knows too much. Mm-hmm. Also, he was a chef, trained chef, came up as a chef. I feel like, are, are we saying that chefs make the best bartenders? Mm-hmm. That's an that's a point of contention, but um, I think the chefs would say that bartenders are not chefs. This former chef would not say that. <laughs> I've been in front of the house many times, and the chefs are like, "What you're doing is a joke." These I'm are the also people chef. that get tattoos of knives on their arms. <laughs> you know, my ex pastry chef boyfriend actually encouraged me to be a bartender because he started doing a stage at PDT. Or, yeah, and I was like, there's no way. I've been working at the one of the best bars in New York City for years now, and he's going to beat me to be behind the stick? I don't think so. <laughs> so no that chance. was a real push. Mm-hmm. I would say that pastry chefs aren't real chefs, but that's a different conversation. I bet you pastry <laughs> chefs can make a killer Ramos Gin Fizz. I bet they probably, I bet pastry <laughs> chefs probably make the best bartenders, actually. But um, 
they're not real chefs. Um, so citrus is done, out of the way. Cream, orange blossom. We've spoken about that, but absolutely has to be in there. Would you exercise some caution when you're using it? Because like I said, it can be pretty full on. Oh, a little goes a long way, for sure. And you really want it to just be a note. You don't want it to be the, the hero. But that's in there with the original ingredients. and I personally would add it after. Okay. Either as a spritz or just a little dropper. Mm-hmm. Atomizer. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Final ingredient. Sparkling water. Soda water. Seltzer. Whatever you want to call it. Do you have a preference on that or is it basically bubbles and it's good? Because there's a guy out there, I'm going to call out someone else, um, and again, not calling him out. Martin Risa, this is the water guy, the water psalm. He's even been on Conan O'Brien. And this is a German gentleman. He's also, I believe, the um, he's the water sommelier at the Spago, LA. Okay, nice. Yeah, so that's his job. I mean... Fair play to this guy. He's made it his life's work. He's the water psalm. He has a cellar. But he believes that different waters taste differently and also can impact all the other things that you're eating and drinking at the same time. Do you go that deep when it comes to water? I subscribe to all of that because I grew up in Nebraska and um, the water tasted like sand. The water tasted like sand in sand Nebraska? Yeah, because these are sand-based um, locations. Um, and that, that filtration of the water has to only travel like 100 feet to be potable, which um, in Colorado, which is also where I grew up, it only had to travel 50 feet because it depends on the, you know, the terrain that it's, it's moving through, which is kind of disturbing because 100 feet is not that far. No. Um, if you were in New York City and you walked 100 feet and you drank the water <laughs> going down the street. Well, where's our water coming worse. from? It's like... Let's treat it, obviously. But um, yes, I definitely agree that the minerality affects the mouth, the, the, the like how it how it tastes. Sure, um, you've got NaCl, which is a you know a salt, and a magnesium chloride, which is less salty tasting. But if you're using it for a cocktail, at the end of the day, with all those ingredients in your Ramos Gin Fizz, is it going to affect the uh, like the after? the taste that you're experiencing (laughs) or are you just going to taste the cream because of the velvety um, notes or are you going to taste the uh, citrus? So you're not checking TDS levels before you're making your drink, before you're choosing? using whatever's available, okay? If Mm -hmm. I have to use a soda gun, I will, just for the sake of being able to get this drink out to the guest. Um, If I had my druthers, though, I would go back to uh, Mr. Arnold and say, a mix of nitrogen and carb, um, carbon, carbon dioxide would be an ideal blend because the size of the bubbles changes. Mm-hmm. And if you, want, if you have smaller bubbles, then maybe you're going to help get that foam or the Whoa. aeration a little bit finer. Now we're talking about one of the world's finest drinks, and that's Guinness. <laughs> nitrogen. Well, there you anyway. go. That's your foam. <laughs> right? We're t- you know, like... All related to the Ramos. But um, no, but I mentioned TDS there before, and I think I should just qualify that by saying that's total dissolved solids, and that's what, like, the, all the things that you're talking about there, right, like um, magnesium, sodium, whatever. So we've gone through, ev- we've basically gone through everything already, but I want you to 
we are sitting at your wonderful bar. I've just finished sitting in the barber chairs in the back. You know, I've, I've done that. I've got a selfie there, which is amazing. I love your bar. So I just wanted to like shout out some of those oh, things. Thank you. We're sat there. I've ordered you a Ramos Gin Fizz. Talk me through the process. That What are you doing next? What are you doing for the next? And I'm only going to give you 10 minutes to make this, not 20. What are you doing for the next however long it takes you to make it? Okay. I'm going to drop my egg white into a tin. I'm going to take another tin and ice it so I can shake my cream. And then I'm going to shake my cream and shake my egg white at the same time. Shake my egg white a little longer than the cream. I'm going to combine the two. Then I'm going to add the citrus after the dry shake. After the dry shake. And the simple after the dry shake. And then the gin last. Add ice after adding uh, the gin. And then shake it, you know, for about three minutes. Or as long as I can stand. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, the shaker just basically needs to be really cold. You've already done the dry shake on the cream and the egg white. So once that's done, strain it into a glass that doesn't have any ice. And maybe pop it in the fridge. But the thing is, the kind of ice that I'm going to use is a pellet ice. I'm not going to use a cube Mm -hmm. um, or a cold draft. Or something like that. So what's pellet ice and why are you using that? Well, if you've ever been to 7-Eleven, you know that that ice that comes with the Slurpee. Mm -hmm. Then you're getting a little bit more surface area. You're getting your dilution faster. And also, you're getting that aggravation process Mm -hmm. down. So not more more than a handful, you know, maybe a golf golf ball size. So you're using that for chill and dilution as all ice is, but... Essentially, by the end of making the drink, then all of it will have dissolved. So you, you, you're kind of calculating that ahead exactly. of time. You want to wait till it completely mm-hmm. is integrated. And you're talking small handful, therefore, of ice. Mm-hmm. And that's pellet ice. That's perfect. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a great explanation. But what's next? Oh, then I pour it into um, basically a, a fizz glass. And a fizz glass is the equivalent of a Coke like a Coke glass, a little tiny glass. So that way you're not adding too much water. You don't want it to be watered down. And um, since you're not using ice, you don't need extra space. Mm-hmm. So a fizz glass is, I think, the a proper terminology. Would, so that's not a highball? It can be a highball. I mean, highball comes in various sizes. Um, I think the traditional highball is about 12 ounces, but you can get a six or an eight. Mm-hmm. But you have this thing, and I've had one of your Ramos Gym Fizz. I wasn't a paying customer, so that's why uh, you know that I wasn't within the last four years of when you made one. But I've had your Ramos Gym Fizz, and you served it to me in a smaller glass, and I was like, you're a genius. Because then there's not that danger of adding too much water. I agree with you. I think that is the, <laughs> <laughs> right, that's the way to go. Yes. How to describe that glass so that people that are not just us two can know what that glass is kind of looks like or kind of what, what, what it is, what you serve that in. It's cylindrical in shape. Um, it's still called a highball. It's still a high, but it's like, what, two-thirds of the normal height of a highball? I would buy something that's between six and eight, and it depends really on how much volume you expect to put into the drink. Um, our specs at... Um, like Little Branch, I think we did half lime, half lemon. We either used sugar cubes or we used um, one ounce of simple syrup. 
I'm going to say one ounce, and I think some people might disagree with me, but that's where I sit. And I don't use an old Tom Gin. I use um, I use Fords, and mm-hmm. I use a beef eater. And um, then the two egg, ounces. The egg white has to be a medium size because if you get too much egg white in there, then it, it just takes up most of the drink. And like you said, it has a certain smell to it. Mm-hmm. So you know, medium is a really good size. And then um, two straight ounces of gin. Mm-hmm. And, and how much cream? Oh, an ounce of cream. An ounce of cream. Mm-hmm. Perfect. And we will, as always, be posting that recipe in the uh, description for the pod. And there's also the transcript online we'll publish the day after the podcast goes live. So you can get all that information there, guys. So you can make Lucinda Sterling's Ramos Gin Fizz. And I think the only thing that we didn't learn from you there is how much orange blossom that you're using. Well, if you're using a dropper, a small drop, not even the full dropper. Um, some people use an atomizer. I think that's a really good idea. One to, one to two sprays. And if you're dropping it straight out of the bottle, that comes like, um, I can't remember the brand. I would just use a drop straight out of the bottle. And just that's it. Yeah. Perfect. Aromas. Once again, yeah, it's just about the nose. Mm-hmm. The nose knows. I keep nose. saying that until <laughs> it's a thing. So any final thoughts on the Ramos? Gin fizz. Um, if you want to enjoy your Ramos gin fizz, Ramos gin fizz, I recommend going straight in from the glass mm-hmm. and getting that milk mustache. Yeah, you know, and in in vibing it with that beautiful aroma of the orange blossom, because all those sensory f- um, faculties will kick in at once, and if you use a straw, it kind of takes away from that. Yes. <clears throat> and I always taught my bartenders, when you first create a drink, drink it the way it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Consumed. Having a sip yeah, doesn't you know, equate to a full glass. Doing a straw taste takes away from the experience completely. Mm-hmm. That's a real great point, though, as well, and relates to your glass ingenuity, which is... I think making a smaller version of this drink is better because then, yeah, drink it faster. It's low ABV. We're talking two ounces of gin and a lot of other stuff going in there, right? Like, drink it fast and then order a second. Order a second for sure, but order it right away. Right away. Um, But I think with those ingredients that we're talking about with egg white, they're very fragile. Yeah. And um, you're going to get that separation. So the separation. So you want to appreciate when it, cause this is like semi emulsified, not fully. Right. You want to enjoy that while it's ha- like, that's what we just spent 40 minutes talking about and 20 minutes making is the, the, the emulsification. Yes, absolutely. It's the most important part for that drink. Mm-hmm. It's been great getting to know you over the Ramos. There's in the, but I want to ask some other questions not related to the drink that are also going to help us get to know you more, but also provide some advice for uh, home bartending geeks or kind of younger bartenders out there starting their journey. Good on you guys. It's, it's tough. It's, you know, you're, you know, someone's got to do it though, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so these are the quick fire questions that we traditionally end the show with. And I'm going to start with question number one. And that is, what is the first bottle 
whether you want a brand or kind of general style that makes it onto any of your back bar programs? If it's not gin, it's bourbon. Um, it's been that way for a long time. Um, I'd like to give um, a special shout out to Elijah Craig because we've been using them at our bars since 2005 or six, and they've pretty much stayed at the same level of quality. Um, mm-hmm. Their profile hasn't changed, and it works in all of our bourbon drinks. It's a really wonderful bourbon. I love it a lot. Yeah, um, and I, I hope they never run out. Second question. Which ingredient or tool is the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? The jigger. Um, because there are so many different styles of jiggers out there, this is really important. If you use a if you use a Japanese jigger, mm-hmm. yeah, you have to fill all the way up so you get the um, meniscus. Meniscus and meniscus can go either way. It can be it can be negative or it can be you know over the top. I think you're going to get a lot of waste, you know, as a bartender and a bar owner. I don't like that. Um, I want to be pretty exact. I like my graduated jiggers. And, um, of course, you have to find one that is actually on point. So I, gra- I buy um, graduated cylinders from McMaster.com, and I actually measure out each of the jiggers to make sure that they're on point. Um, that way you never have to worry about over or under. Meniscusing? Pouring. I'm not missing <laughs> oh, that, too. But um, you're never really going to – Sasha said this. You're never going to really ruin a drink if you add too much alcohol. Mm-hmm. But if you add too much sugar or if you add too much citrus, you might have an imbalanced cocktail. Um, obviously, old fashions can never have too much bourbon. <laughs> but uh, if you have too much sugar or lime in your daiquiri, it'll throw it off. And you'll be able to taste that. Well, that's very nice little natural walkway into our next question here. Because the third question on our list is... What's the most important piece of advice you've received in the industry? No wasted steps. And what does that look like? That means being very efficient at what you're doing because you want to execute as much as you possibly can with as little effort um, and little time as possible. You have a room full of people that are clamoring for drinks, right? Mm -hmm. And you want to walk home at the end of the day with like $10,000. So what are you going to do? You're going to learn your steps of service. You're going to learn how to build your rounds. You're going to learn how to be efficient and whatever that takes. You know, I, I don't know if you're a server. I don't know if you're a bartender, but figure out your mise en place, figure out how to serve your guests as fast as possible and as well as possible and communicate with your team all the time. And don't be afraid to ask for help. Wonderful advice. Question number four. If you could only visit one last bar in your life, what would it be? I would visit the Rainbow Room. Nice. And this is, yeah, you're able to go back in time with this question to allowing that. <laughs> Talk to us about that choice. Learning from one of the best, an icon, you know, mm-hmm. and just watching him work and his team. I'm sure it was just magical. And then on top of that, being able to see a panoramic view of New York City can't beat that and i heard you speaking on a panel recently 
and it was about Sasha's legacy. And I'm someone who never got to go to the original Milk and Honey. And I think that's another one that's kind of in that conversation, right? Like the way that people always describe just kind of like stepping into that. Part of me feels like it's kind of cool that I have it as this mythical thing that I kind of like never did experience. You know what I mean? Like sometimes meeting your heroes will crush your dreams. Um, But Rainbow Room would be right up there. Like you say, just that period of time and what was happening. And you mentioned Milk and Honey. I remember when I walked in for the first time, it wasn't necessarily the candlelight or the you know, the demure um, bar setting. The person that I first saw when I walked into Milk and Honey was Sasha. And he's the one that changed my vision of what a gentleman should be. You know, he's dressed in his trousers that are too baggy and his nice button-up shirt and his suspenders. And that made me realize there is completely a, there's a completely different side to society than I was familiar with. Um, I grew up, like I said, in Nebraska and Colorado. This to me was like the consummate gentleman, Mm -hmm. you know? So, um, that, I think that's the reason Milk and Honey was just so much of a draw. Mm -hmm. And of course the cocktails are great, but the first time I walked in there, I ordered a dirty vodka martini. Come on. Amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And then he he continued to spill it on me, but, um, he didn't want me to tell that story can't tell me not to anymore (laughs) poor guy Mm -hmm. um so i think what i'd like to just um make known is that i would love to visit bars that don't have that same appeal that are that we're used to Mm -hmm. you know and the only reason i'd say i would ever go to my own and um that shouldn't be said is because I do my best to emulate what Sasha started, you know, and because Seaborn is one of his last ventures, he wanted to do that as an original milk and honey mm-hmm. venture. You know, he was working all by himself. It was in a neighborhood that was a little, you know, on the pioneer edge. That made me really strive to keep his legacy alive. And so I guess if I'm going to, have a last drink <laughs> that's going to probably be where it is mm-hmm. i'm doing a wonderful job of continuing with that thanks <laughs> final question for you which is kind of apt too if you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last how would you order your dirty vodka martini how would i order my dirty vodka <laughs> no, martini no. what would you order oh i was gonna say that wouldn't be a bad idea um I would order a Negroni. And the reason behind that is because the first time I ever tasted a Negroni, I hated it. It was too bitter. I was like, this is so repulsive, I can't even stand it. But since then, and since my palate has kind of matured and developed over time as a bartender, my aim to create drinks is to take ingredients that I don't like and then just make them work well together and find a balance. And so now I've achieved that. <laughs> I enjoy the Negroni more. I have an appreciation for that. Mm-hmm. I think Campari is like training wheels for the palate. It could be. Or yeah. kale, you know, bit, but it's bitterness we're talking about there. And yeah. 
I'm with you. First time someone gave me a Negroni, there's a sip of someone's Negroni. I said, there's no fucking way you like this drink. You're just drinking this to be pretentious. How are you enjoying this cocktail? I love a Negroni now. Yeah. Well, I love all things Italian too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Lucinda, it's been so fun chatting with you. I've loved this conversation about the Ramos gin fizz. Um, I'm going to go out there right now and order one. And get some. Let's go. Let's do it. Cheers. Okay, that was a lot of info, but here's the good news. Every single episode of VinePair's Cocktail College is also published on VinePair.com as a transcript, so you can check it out there all over again. Also, if you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe. And please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded and produced in New York City by myself and Keith Beavers, VinePair's tastings director and all-round podcast guru. Of course, I want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the VinePair team. Too many awesome people to mention. They know who they are. But I want to give some credit here to Danielle Grinberg, art director at VinePair, for designing the awesome show logo. And listen to that music. That's a Darby Seaside original. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time. <laughs>